In these past few weeks together, in these prior chapters, we've been kind of looking at the uh, instructions that God has been giving to Moses regarding the uh, institution of the the tabernacle worship system as he's uh, been receiving revelation from the Lord as far as how to build this sort of portable worship system that they would set up as they would journey around to different areas in the wilderness and uh, God has been giving specific commands uh, to Moses sort of showing him by revelation the blueprint of this the dimensions of how it was to be built the different furnishings, uh, the institution of the priesthood, their garments, and how they were to be put into their uh, function of ministry. Uh, And as we continue in chapter 30 now, we begin to get a little more instruction regarding some other furnishings uh, that were to be a part of the tabernacle. Now, we've been looking at these things together again just by way of maybe a a visual frame of reference. If you remember, the the tabernacle itself uh, being a tent like structure remember it was basically a frame that was overlaid with four different coverings it was uh, 15 foot wide 45 foot long it was divided into two rooms uh, the front room being 15 foot wide and then 30 foot deep Uh, and as you would enter into that first room if you remember on the right hand side would have been the table of showbread where the 12 loaves were there to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Over to your left would be the menorah or the lampstand, that oil burning uh, lamp that was there. Uh, Straight in front of you, as we'll see in our verses tonight, this next furnishing actually would be what's called the altar of incense. And then remember there was a veil with embroidered cherubim upon it, basically that separated the front room from the room in the rear, which was a 15 by 15 foot cube, uh, and inside of that room was basically one furnishing, which was what? Does anybody remember? Please, somebody remember. I'm doing a bad job. All right. The, the ark was in the back there with the mercy seat as the lid on top of it. And that was where, remember, the Shekinah glory of God or the presence, the kabod, the the weightiness of God's presence was manifest among his people. And once a year, remember, the high priest and the high priest only, one man, one time a year could go behind that veil. It was a reminder that people could not, as sinful human beings, just proceed directly into the presence of God because God was too holy and only once a year the high priest could go behind that veil that with the blood of an innocent sacrifice where he would then apply the blood to the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation Uh, and outside of this tent-like structure remember there was a courtyard And as you came into the courtyard, the first thing that you would see was the brazen altar, which basically was the altar where the sacrifices were offered up by the priests, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the peace offerings. We'll see more of these things again as we uh, get into the book of Leviticus. So the first large furnishing there was this bronze brazen altar where the sacrifices were made unto the Lord. And then as you walked a little further before you actually got to the tent, there was what was called this uh, laver of bronze or like a bronze wash basin, which we'll see in our chapter tonight as well, uh, where the priests would cleanse themselves with a basin of water. So again, we kind of showed you some pictures of some of these things. We've been looking at them, the different dimensions. You've been patiently tracking along through cubits and different kinds of complicated things. And we have a few more chapters here as God continues to give some more of these instructions regarding the tabernacle and its worship system uh, here in these verses in front of us. The last two chapters we looked at have described the priesthood, but now we come back to some of these furnishings that we haven't talked about yet. Verse 1 of chapter 30, God says, You shall make an altar to burn incense on, and you shall make it of acacia wood. This has been the wood we've seen throughout that's been used Uh, the acacia wood and a cubit shall be its length and a cubit shall be its width again we've talked about the cubit Uh, typically the standard cubit in that day would be about 18 inches long so whenever you read a cubit basically you can take that number and multiply it times 1.5 feet so basically you have here uh, a a box now that's built 
and it is, says it's a cubit by length and a cubit's width. So basically about an 18 inch square is what this would be. And it says that it shall be two cubits, verse 2, in its height. Uh, so that would be about 36 inches high. So you have this wooden box about three foot high, a foot and a half square. And it says it shall have horns, just like, remember, the altar uh, had out in the courtyard area where they offer the sacrifices. And verse 3, like many of these other furnishings, this wooden acacia box then was to be overlaid its sides and all around its top and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around it so that it would be ornate or decorative. Verse 4, two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides and you shall place them on its two sides and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it and you shall make the poles as well with acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So again, like many of these furnishings, we have the loops and the poles. And basically because these furnishings uh, weren't to be carried, uh, in a sense, with the hands, the, the, the Levitical uh, ministers were not to touch them with their hands, but they were actually to be borne on their shoulders. Uh, but again, they weren't to put their hands on. And again, of course, no doubt symbolically that no uh, flesh was to touch uh, that which was of God's work and of God's spirit, that there was to be instead this understanding that they were to bear these things on them shoulders rather than to put their hands upon them. And again, a good, it's a good reminder for us that it's really intelligent and very wise of us when we serve the Lord in any capacity of whatever our functions may be in the, the ministry of worship. And again, oftentimes we think of worship, we use the term worship, Typically, when we say the worship team, we, we, we just think of the musical portion of the service. When the reality is, uh, worship is much more than music. Music is just one form of worship, one way in which we worship the Lord as we sing to the Lord and make melody in our hearts. But uh, you know, our, our submission and attention and adherence to the Word of God, which is what we're doing now, should be just as much an aspect of worship whereby as an attitude of worship before the Lord we attentively uh, and expectantly say Lord I believe that you want to say something to me and I want to hear what you want to tell me whether it's instruction or correction or to confirm something in my life or to give me direction and then I want to hear that and an attitude of worship Lord I want to pay attention speak Lord your servants listening and then I want to obey that and I want to live that out as we pray that's a part of our worship. I think as we fellowship and we come into the house of the Lord in a worship service, a worship meeting, every component of that should be an attitude of worship before the Lord. As I said, even to the uh, very thing of, of our interacting before and after the service, whereby we have an attitude where, like Philippians 2 says, we're considering others better than ourselves. We're looking out not only to our own interests. We're not just coming into the house of God saying, well, what can I get out of this and bless me and, and, and simply looking just to receive something, though certainly we always should. When we draw near to the Lord, he draws near to us. But as well, we should have a heart in worship to say, Lord, as a part of my offering to worship, uh, I want to offer a sacrifice of praise. But Lord, make me a vessel. And, and if I can minister to somebody else and encourage someone else and that ministry and dynamic of the spiritual gifts taking place as we edify each other in love, all these things, again, are a part of our worship. So here again, just an interesting thing as we look at these furnishings, all these pieces of the tabernacle worship system and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, again, we've seen all along that they weren't to put their hands necessarily on these things. And good reminder for us that we just, you know, kind of have a hands-off approach, Lord, help my fingerprints not to be too much on what you're doing, but instead that there would be sort of a reverence and a recognition of these things are sacred, they're of your spirit, and, and, and there's something that we want to just be careful to not put our hands and fingerprints on a little too much as they would bear them on their shoulders as they transported them with reverence for these pieces that were used. Verse 6, we're then told regarding this altar of incense that sat right outside of the veil. We're told here, you shall put it before the veil, which we just talked about, before the Ark of the Testimony that was in the back room, the Holy of Holies, the back uh, was where the presence of God was among the Ark. 
uh, it was to sit in front of the veil in the front room before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, God says, where I will meet with you. And verse 7, here's the purpose of this altar of incense. Of course, Aaron, the high priest, shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, the menorah, the oil-burning lamps. He shall at the same time burn incense there on the altar of incense. Verse 8, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight. So the idea is in the evening, both in the morning and in the evening, he shall also burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So this altar of incense, like many of these pieces we've been looking at in the tabernacle worship system, certainly they were literal functions and aspects of the worship system in that day in Israel. But as we've been talking about all along, all of these things as well, no doubt have a, a figurative sense. They symbolically represent aspects of the life and ministry of Christ. And we've talked about these things as we go through. So now we have this altar of incense and no doubt the altar of incense is representative of prayer and the ministry of intercession in prayer. Again, we have verses in Scripture at times that allude to how on occasion that incense rising before the throne of God, like a sweet savor, as if you've ever smelt incense burnt before, and just the fragrance of it. Uh, many times we have a few occasions in the Bible where God refers to prayer in the form of incense. For example, Psalm 141 verses 1 and 2 says this, Lord, I cry out to you, Make haste to me, give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, you have this picture of the scene around God's throne in the eternal dimension. And there, as it's showing you a scene around the throne of God in the eternal realm, it says the saints fall down before the lamb and it says each having golden bowls full of incense. Listen, it says, which are the prayers of the saints? So we have these illusions in the word of God where God in a figurative sense uh, pictures our prayers ascending before his throne in the same way as incense, like a pleasing fragrance would rise up. And again, the, the, the delight, the pleasure that it would bring, the smell, the, the fragrance of this incense, the aroma of it, that God pictures that and says, that's what it's like for me when my people pray to me. Now, I think it's a good reminder because sometimes we almost think we're troubling the Lord when we pray to him, almost as if sometimes we feel like because of our behavior or how often we find ourselves running to God, that God's like, oh, not you again. You know, you know I mean, we almost envision this idea sometimes. I mean, let's be quite candid. Maybe there's somebody in your job place uh, that you, you, you almost, when you see them coming across the job place, you almost kind of try and do the, you know, like you're you know, running back in the you know, catch on the football return where you're almost like looking to try and avoid them somehow because it's like if they corner me again, then they're going to just, you know, talk to me forever. And, and sometimes we get like that with people. And I think we almost envision sometimes that we're bothering the Lord when we pray to him or as if somehow he doesn't want to hear from us when the reality is God pictures our prayer like incense rising up before his throne, something that's pleasing it's satisfying to the Lord that nothing delights him more than to hear your voice when you come to him and you speak to him, that it's a, it brings pleasure to his heart like a father hearing the voice of their child. And, and here we have this altar of incense where the priest would go in and morning and evening he would offer this sweet smelling incense upon the altar of incense, interesting, right outside of the veil you know, ultimately, the wonderful thing is now, as New Testament believers, we can go right behind the veil and we have a direct access to the presence of God because the veil of Jesus' flesh has been rent and torn in what he did for us in his death upon the cross, that there's no barrier for us anymore, that we can go directly into the presence of the Lord and go directly with boldness to the throne of God's grace into his presence. But as we look at this, no doubt a picture of the prayer life and how the priest twice a day at least, was to tend to this altar of incense in the morning and the evening. And of course, 
as we look at the high priest doing this, it's certainly a great reminder of part of the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. Because the New Testament tells us that one of the primary ministries and functions of Jesus right now tonight as the result of dying for our sins upon the cross and raising from the dead and ascending back to the right hand of the Father is the Bible says that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is perpetually making intercession for us. That that's one of his ministries. That he's interceding for you. Imagine that. I mean, you can't have somebody better praying for you than the Lord Jesus himself, making intercession for our weaknesses, making intercession for us, for spiritual strength and our victory. Uh, and what an amazing thing to think about. Hebrews 7 says that he you know, always lives to make intercession for the saints. And what a wonderful thing. Romans 8 describes the same thing, that he's there making intercession. And just like the high priest, Jesus making perpetual intercession there before the throne of God for us. And of course, as we read this, it's a good reminder to us that like this high priest would go in, we certainly too should have a consistency to our prayer life. I think it's a good thing to morning and evening to start your day and end your day talking to the Lord. And here it's interesting, verse 80 says... It was to be offered as a perpetual. The idea is continuous incense. And what does First Thessalonians chapter 5 say? That part of God's will for us is that we would pray what? Without ceasing. That we be in constant communication before the Lord. And we should live our day in constant fellowship, just communicating to the Lord, talking to the Lord. But I think there should be, like there was a specific place and a specific time where that priest would go in and tend to the incense altar there and, and set incense before the Lord. You know, I think that we should have in our lives as Christians... Not just a, an ongoing conversation with the Lord, but I think there should be a measure of discipline in our spiritual life whereby maybe there is that special place for us where we go. Here the priest would go into the altar of incense and at a particular time, I think there should be a special place and maybe special times where you designate and just spend some time seeking the Lord in intercession that you would carve out times where maybe you just go and maybe it's in a closet or maybe some special place and, and maybe you just kneel and get before the Lord at your altar of incense in a sense and you just let your prayers ascend before the throne of God. It's how beautiful to see in Revelation 5. Apparently, no prayer is wasted. It says in Revelation 5, what we just read, that there are golden bowls full of incense in heaven which are the prayers of the saints. Remember we talked about that these things had to be made according to specification. Why? Because the book of Hebrews tells us that somehow all of these things in the tabernacle worship system in some way are reflective of what exists in the eternal realm. And what an amazing thing to think that our prayers are so precious to God that he uses golden bowls. That's how valuable your prayers are. None of your prayers are meaningless, worthless. Sometimes we go, oh, I feel like I pray and my prayers bounce off the ceiling. Well, that may be your perception. That may be what your feelings are. But trust me, from God's perspective, he has got golden bowls that are so valuable. It says literally our prayers like incense and golden bowls are there before the throne of God. That he values our prayers. He values hearing our voice. And just this beautiful description here interesting luke chapter 1 verse 8 to 10 uh even gives the 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 sense in the uh, new testament when zacharias went in that day and he was putting uh incense upon the altar of incense it says and the people were outside praying so it seems that as the priest would offer the incense on the altar of incense and the people would know that it was ascending that they simultaneously outside of the tabernacle would spend time in prayer as they knew that the priest was doing the same thing. And certainly, again, I just think a great example for us that we would have our altar where we, like uh, incense before the Lord, would be raising our prayers up before his throne. Certainly a much neglected area, I think, in the worship life of the modern church. We love to sing songs. We love to rock out with great music. We love charismatic, dynamic preachers and listening to great sermons. But there certainly seems, and I can say this with credibility and relativity, having been in numerous different churches myself, there certainly seems to just be an apathy and a disinterest in the ministry and the worship of prayer. 
of just wanting to just sit and talk to God and let God talk to us as we sit in his presence and quietness that you know we, we don't need entertainment we just we just want to spend time talking to God uh, and the value of it here it was a part of that remember the Bible tells us that Jesus said my father's house shall be called a house of prayer and certainly something that I pray the Lord continues to give us a greater desire for and, and mark uh, as one of the defining marks of our ministry because it certainly was throughout the days of old and it's important to the heart of God. Now verse 9, we also had this little instruction here where God gives a warning regarding the altar of incense. He says, you shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And the idea there being that there was a prescribed way in which they were to offer that incense and there was a prescribed use for that altar of incense and so God says listen you need to approach me in the prescribed way the Bible certainly tells us that there is a right way and a wrong way to pray and there is a right way and a wrong way to worship that God cares about the condition of our heart in fact the scriptures tell us that one of the things that can disrupt our prayers from being received and connecting with the Lord is if things aren't right in our lives personally David says in the Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It doesn't say the Lord cannot hear me. Isaiah says in his writing, the Lord's hand is not short nor his ear deaf that he cannot hear. But God says, but your sins have separated you from me, says the Lord. And the Bible seems to indicate that there is one thing that can run, let's put it this way, interference. You know, you ever been on a cell phone with somebody and a call drops or you get interference? It's like, you, you're still there and, and there's, there's interference in the communication? Well, the Word of God says that our sin and sin in our lives that's undealt with kind of causes interference in regards to our communication and relationship with the Lord. It doesn't say that He can't hear us. It says, David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear which is, is kind of an interesting thing. Not that God can't hear our voice. It's basically that God in a sense says, well, look, if you want to continue to cherish that, that sin, that wrongdoing, that iniquity more than me, then God says in a sense, uh, then with, and when that becomes less important than I do, then I'm willing to listen again. But in the meantime, if you want to cherish and worship that, in a sense, the Lord steps back and, and can in some ways sort of almost close his ears to our prayers uh, and wants us for a purposeful reason to recognize, hmm, it seems that communication between me and the Lord is having a little interference. And he does that in marriage relationships or in relationships period we some say sometimes uh, what's wrong why are you giving me the silent treatment right we, anybody who's married knows that or you give someone the silent treatment or maybe you've gotten the silent treatment that's just kind of our you know roundabout way we give the silent treatment to say something's not right between you and me right now you offended me or uh, and, and it's intended to provoke an awareness and sometimes the Lord can give a little bit of the silent treatment to say, listen, you need to deal with this in your life. You need to reconcile this. You need to confess it or repent of it. And here, they weren't to offer, they couldn't just approach God with any, they couldn't just throw any old thing on the altar of incense and be irreverent about their approach. They were to do it in a prescribed way that God required. We'll ultimately see in Leviticus chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who were to succeed him ultimately end up dying because they bring strange fire to this altar of incense and God judges them because they came with a wrong attitude and their heart was not right before the Lord. Verse 10 he says, And Aaron shall also make atonement upon the horns of that incense altar. Notice once a year, so this would be at the same time of the day of atonement when the high priest would go into the uh, Holy of Holies with the mercy seat there and he would apply the blood for the sins of the nation it seems on that same time once a year he also was to apply blood to the altar of incense before he went behind the veil the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year he says he shall make atonement upon it through your generations because it is most holy to the Lord now I find that interesting that once a year 
as the high priest went back to make atonement for the sins of the nation upon the mercy seat so that God's mercy would be bestowed upon the people and his wrath and judgment would not fall upon them, that as a part of that protocol, he also was to apply some of the blood of atonement to the place of really what represented prayer. And I can't help but to think how it's essential, again, as I just referred to, that our hearts be right before the Lord. And a part of us being able to have right fellowship and relationship with the Lord is our sins need to be forgiven. There needs to be confession at times. Uh, you know, For us to be able to have access to the Lord, our, our, our heart needs to be in the right place. And I can't help but to look at that and to think, perhaps does God put that there in his word? Because quite honestly, sometimes even our prayers are not right before the Lord. That the Lord says, you know what, you need to even make atonement once a year on the place where incense is offered, where prayer was represented, because sometimes, if I were to be honest, uh, I pray some prayers that, you know what, sometimes I have to step back and say, it might almost be borderline sinful the way I pray sometimes. You know, James says, does he not, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. And we can pray wrongly, truth be told. At times we can have a selfish motivation or a wrong agenda. And our prayers, in a sense, can almost be inappropriate in the way we approach God or what we're asking for. So interesting. I just find it insightful here. I'm not saying that that is exactly what this refers to, but I can't help but to think, but you know, I need the Lord's cleansing even over my prayer life on occasion because at times maybe my uh, you know, attitude or the things I'm asking or requesting really aren't pleasing to the Lord. And it's interesting, even atonement was made upon the incense altar itself once a year. Verse 11, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, and we'll ultimately see that census taken in Numbers chapter 1, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every man among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and then we'll get the weight there, a shekel is 20 geras, and the half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. And ultimately we see this was to be given in silver. Verse 14, everyone included among those who are numbered from 21 years old and above, so it seems that was sort of an age of accountability God held them at when he would measure out at times and take numberings for their military and so forth. We see a continual reference to this 20 years old and above. Those 20 and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. So there was to be equality, whether you were wealthy or poor. This wasn't a large sum of money anyway. It was a very minuscule amount of money. But notice there was an equal need to pay this ransom or atonement money. And there was an equality. Everyone approached God on the same level ground here. There wasn't more or less given. It didn't matter what your economic status was. The need was the same. The offering was the same. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, here we have this reference to God requesting or uh, really instructing that they were to give this half shekel. It says here when they numbered the people. So when they took a census and this was a common thing to take censuses in the ancient culture at times, you know, kings would take a census to see how many they had in their military personnel. Uh, at times as well, censuses were taken to be able to know how many people were under your reign or your authority so that you could make taxation upon the people, the population that existed that you ruled over. So basically a census, in a lot of ways, you have to understand in your mind, was basically an indication of ownership. When a king would require a census, it was a way of the king identifying those who were under his rule, under his authority, and under his ownership. Now, here God mentions taking a census of the people, and he refers to it as that they were to give a half shekel as a ransom for themselves, and there's a reference here as well to make atonement for themselves. Now, 
We need to be careful. We don't want to read into this that what God is saying is, well, okay, the way that you make atonement for your sins and make ransom for yourself to be accepted by God is, is you can just pay God off with a half shekel. Well, we know in the light of Scripture as a whole that that's certainly not true. Leviticus 17, God clearly says the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given the blood to make atonement for your soul. So uh, again, at this point, they're an already a ransomed and a redeemed people. The Lord has already purchased them for himself. He's ransomed them, taken them out of Egypt. What God no doubt is doing here as they would pay this half shekel as a ransom for themselves really was nothing more of them participating in a way of making acknowledgement that the Lord had ownership over their lives. And as the leaders, Moses and those in that day, would receive this half shekel as atonement money for the people, for each individual, it was a way for them to remember, listen, though you may serve the people as a shepherd of Israel, though you may serve the people as a high priest, Moses, Aaron, the people don't belong to you. They are the ransomed of the Lord. This was money that was given unto the Lord. It was a way of acknowledging they had been ransomed by the Lord, that they had been received by the Lord, and that they belonged and were under the rulership and the authority of the Lord. And no doubt as they received this, as they took this census at God's direction, it was to remind the people that they were God's people. They didn't belong to Moses. Moses didn't redeem them. He was just whom God used to lead and guide the people out. But God was the one who brought their salvation and God was the one who ransomed them and delivered them. And this was a way for them to, in the process of this, to have a recognition of the ownership of the Lord over their lives. Now, as a part of this half shekel, which ultimately becomes the temple tax we see in the New Testament, this kind of segues into that, Notice, everyone equally gave the same. And of course, again, symbolically, these are just good reminders. Whether you're rich or poor, it's level ground before the Lord. Everybody needs atonement. Everybody approaches God on the same uh, boundaries. You know, there's no difference. God doesn't make distinction. There's an equality of all of us. And we all have equal value before the Lord. It doesn't matter whether a person's rich or poor or what their status is. In verse 16, we see another purpose behind this. The Lord instructs Moses, you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, a half shekel from each person as they took the census, and you shall take that money, notice verse 16, and appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial, a reminder, there's the idea, for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So we see that this money was to be gathered, this half shekel, and it was to be then designated or used for the construction and the establishment of these tabernacle furnishings. Uh, Much of what we've been looking at, basically God was financing his work through his people. Again, God didn't say go out and do some lemonade fundraisers among the Egyptians and the Canaanites and here's a strategic marketing plan. And No, God finances his own work and he finances his work through his own people. And here God says, take that atonement money, appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. They were to then use that to finance the construction of the tabernacle worship system. Verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. And notice, no dimensions given. This is the only furnishing in the tabernacle system that we have no dimensions given of is this wash basin of bronze or this laver of bronze. God gives no dimensions. And you shall put it Located between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, the bronze altar in the courtyard, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. And when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, notice, pretty serious, God says, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet. Again, God says, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So at this point here, we come to the last furnishing of the many we've looked at. 
uh, of the tabernacle worship system. And this, again, is another furnishing outside of the tent structure in the courtyard area. When you first came into the courtyard area, the first thing was the, the bronze altar where the animal sacrifices were made as they were the animals were you know put to death and then burnt upon the altar. And then before you got to the tent of the tabernacle itself and you entered in, there was then situated this seems somewhat large bronze laver or a bronze basin that was filled with water that the priests were to utilize, it says, to wash, notice, not their whole bodies, they were to wash their hands and they were to wash their feet in it so that they would be ceremonial clean as they went in to do the work of the Lord of ministry as well as the fact, no doubt, if you can just envision as they're functioning in the sacrificial system, uh, they're probably getting a little bit sloppy and you know the blood and so forth as they're doing all these things to be able to cleanse themselves as well. And take notice, they weren't to take a bath. This wasn't something they took a bath in. We saw last week at the inauguration of the priesthood, remember, they were to be brought to the beginning or the front of the tabernacle and it says they were to be bathed. Remember, Moses was to actually bathe the entire body of the priest as they were set into their priestly ministry and then there were to be continual cleansing. So there was to be one bath as they were ordained and set into ministry service, but then there was to be regular cleansings, the washings of their hand and their feet as they performed their continuous and ongoing ministries. And again, just a beautiful picture of, of our lives. You know, as we look at the washing of this water here, Whenever we see water in the scriptures in the sense of thirst, you know, it seems that water in the sense of thirst in the Old Testament is a picture of the spirit that quenches our thirst. But whenever we see water used for washing, it typically is a representation symbolically of the word of God. And how we're washed in the water of the word. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way clean or pure? It says, you know, by taking heed to your word. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are clean because of the word in which I've spoken to you. Ephesians 5 describes how we are cleansed with the washing of the water of the word. And whenever we see the water utilized for washing, it's a picture of the word of God and how our lives are cleansed and washed and made clean through the word of God by our repeated exposure to the word of God. And what a beautiful picture here. Uh, as the priest uh, initially to be set into service needed to complete cleansing that's a beautiful picture of salvation the bible says in first peter 2 we've talked about this how we have a priestly ministry now as new testament believers and when we first are, are, are brought to the lord and put into a, a life of ministry in christ as we need a complete bath we need to be completely cleansed and completely washed but then as we continue to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord, we need to be regularly experiencing cleansings from the water of the word, not our whole body, but our hands get dirty as we live in this world, our feet get defiled as we journey through this world. And as a result, we need constant exposure to the water of the word of God. Like these priests, we need to keep our minds clean and our hearts pure. And that happens by continually washing in the water of the word of God. And letting it renew our minds and cleanse our hearts. And such an essential thing as we walk with the Lord, as we serve the Lord, that we're repeatedly being cleansed by exposure and interaction personally with the Word of God to keep us clean and a usable vessel before the Lord. You know, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 13. If you look at that chapter there where uh, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Remember after the dinner there in the upper room and he's just coming around to Peter. Peter says, you know, far be it from you, Lord. You, you're the Lord. You're not washing my feet. And he says, Peter, um, you know, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then he says, give me a whole bath, Lord. You know, scrub me from head to toe. I don't ever. And, and he says, Peter, you, 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 someone who's already been cleansed doesn't need a bath you only need your feet washed in other words peter you've already been cleaned when you experienced your salvation but what you do need peter is your feet washed regularly because as you journey through this world and as they would journey through that world you could go to the to the bathhouse 
and get completely clean. But then when you left from the bathhouse and you walked on the dusty roads with open sandals, your feet would get dirty as you journeyed on the dirty, dusty roads. And it's a picture of, of our lives. You know, we're, we're cleansed, we're clean when we experience salvation. But then as we journey through this life, this filthy world, our feet get kind of dirty and, and, and we need to continually be in the word of God so we can be cleansed and washed so that we can have the filth of our lives cleansed out. And the word of God has this washing, cleansing effect as we expose ourselves to it, reading it daily, hearing it in Bible study as we come together for gatherings and hear the priests were to make sure there was this repeated washing. And it was an important part. God took it very serious because God said, lest you stop doing it and you die. And I tell you something, if you begin to ignore the word of God in your life, your spiritual life will very quickly begin to die. If you begin to get the attitude of, well, hey, I know all the Christian buttons, I can push them, and, and your life, you know, and maybe you're still even going about all your little ministry functions. And you can come in, and you can teach your Sunday school class, and do this, and do your that, and, and, but, but you, you, you never need to have your life exposed to the word of God, I tell you something, you will very quickly find that your spiritual life will begin to die. Because it's as we're in the word of God being washed and cleansed, it's the very thing that keeps our heart in the right place that lets us stay usable for God. Listen, be very, very careful as you serve the Lord that you don't begin to think in the midst of your Christian maturity that somehow you still don't need to keep washing in the laver and allowing the word of God to cleanse you and to wash over your life personally, to, to keep you in a clean and usable state before the Lord. God took very serious that they were to be ceremonially clean as they went in to perform their service in his presence. Verse 22, moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, as much as sweet smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. Everything always works out good with a little touch of olive oil, doesn't it? God even knew that. As they're making this anointing oil now that we've read about that was to be used, this is the ingredients now. Verse 25, and you shall make from these a holy anointing oil out of those ingredients that God just prescribed. That holy anointing oil was an ointment compounded according to the art of a perfumer. And it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and its utensils, the lampstand and all its utensils, and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the labor and its base. And you shall consecrate them. They were, again, to be anointed and set apart that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy or sanctified unto God, set apart for holy use. In verse 30, you shall also anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. And here's our phrase again, that they may minister to me as priests. So here we have the description, again, God's prescribed ingredients according to the way they were to make this ointment for this anointing oil. And we've talked about already before how this anointing oil is representative of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That this anointing would be upon them for their ministry. That notice, everything was to have the anointing upon it. Those who functioned in the ministry capacities. But not just that, everything, the entire ministry, every portion or part oh, of, of the, that which was utilized for ministry was to have the unction and anointing of God to be upon it. And that is so important, again, that, that the anointing of the Lord be upon all that we do, that his anointing, his spirit's anointing and unction would be divinely enabling and empowering everything that takes place in regards to the worship system of our lives as it was here. And he says, verse 31, you shall speak to the children of Israel saying to them, this shall be, notice, God said it was exclusive. It shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. 
And then he gives some prohibition here. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, and nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. In other words, you weren't to make an imitation of the same thing with your own ingredients made up. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So as God speaks about this anointing here, he gives two prohibitions. The first thing is he says this was to be used for the tabernacle furnishings and it was to be put upon those who were ordained for the ministry of the Lord. Those who God had called and set apart for this ministry and he says, therefore, you're not to use this in just a casual, kind of irreverent way. God says they were not to take that anointing. And verse 32, they were not to take that anointing oil and put it upon man's flesh. Now, I think there certainly is intended to be a lesson there. God does not ever want to anoint our flesh. God does not want to put his anointing upon our flesh. And sometimes, tragically, a mistake we make in Christian ministry or in the things of God or worship is we want to offer to God the works of our flesh and say, Lord, how about you bless that? Lord, I got this really great talent or Lord, how about this really good idea? We're going to do this ministry. We're going to do this thing. And, and we kind of offer to God the works, the energies, the efforts of our flesh. And we say, Lord, and how about you bless that? Here's my best endeavor in the flesh. And how about you put your anointing upon that? God says, I don't ever want to anoint your flesh. I don't want the flesh profits nothing. The Bible says the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. God says no flesh shall glory in my presence. God does not want to anoint the works and energies and efforts of our flesh. He wants his anointing to be upon that which is led and prescribed and exclusively the work of his spirit. That is all his anointing. So God doesn't want to anoint the flesh and nor notice does he want them, it says here, to make an imitation, an imitation of what was intended to be this anointing oil? And, and I think no doubt the Lord is giving us a reminder there that he doesn't want us as well to try and imitate the anointing of God. The anointing of God is the anointing of God. And what that looks like upon one person's life may be different than what it looks like upon another person's life. But God help us from watching the way somebody else ministers saying, well, man, I really, the way he you know, leads worship or the way he teaches the word or the way he evangelizes or the way she does that and the Lord uses her. And we look at the anointing of God upon someone else's life and it's the genuine anointing of the spirit upon their life. And rather than seek the Lord for his genuine anointing upon our life, we try and imitate the anointing of the Lord. So then if I just kind of talk the way he talks, then, well, maybe that's what the anointing's in because he, he, he seems to have this. And, and somehow we envision that's what the anointing is in. No, remember, God doesn't anoint the flesh. We don't want to imitate God's anointing. Either God's anointing is on you or it's not. Either the anointing of God's spirit is resting upon you and that will manifest in your life according to the way God's made you and who he's created you to be. Or if not, we're trying to create and make a counterfeit anointing and, and create an imitation of the anointing of God. And God says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Here he, he, he put a prohibition against that. And I think the same for us. He, he wants us to genuinely have the, the true anointing of the spirit to be upon our lives. Look at verse 34. He mentions now the ingredients for the incense that we looked at back in the earlier part of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacked and anica and galbanum and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each and you shall make these an incense, a compound according to the art of a perfumer, salted and pure and holy and you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I meet with you. And it shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense, again, God says, verse 37, but as for the incense, which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, it shall be, uh, he shall be cut off from his people. So, uh, again, as God now gives in these verses, notice the exact 
ingredients, the specifications for this incense that was to be used by the priest as he went in upon the altar of incense. Here God again gives a clearly prescribed way and he again gives another uh, a caution or warning. He says, verse 37, that you're not to take this sacred incense and to make it for yourselves according to its composition. Again, they were to have reverence for this incense. It was to be something that was for the Lord. It was between them and the Lord. They weren't to try and manufacture it or have anything that was insincere about it. And, and no doubt as, as we look at that, uh, you know, in relation to how it's a reminder, the incense of our prayers ascending up before the Lord, and they weren't to manufacture it or use it in some selfish way uh, because, hey, well, you know, that, that priest really smells good. That incense, I think I'll have that for, uh, you know, fragrance in my living room there. I kind of like the smell of a priest. You know, that smells pretty good. And, and they would try and take it in this irreverent way, take something that's to be sacred and try and use it in a very insincere and casual way, and God, God warned them not to do that. And I can't help but to think, as I look at that, it's a reminder to me that, you know what? God sincerely desires genuineness in our spiritual experience. And as this represents prayer, you know what? You know what I can give you as one of the greatest exhortations for your prayer life? Just be genuine. Listen, when you pray and talk to God, just be genuine. Jesus said you think you'll be heard because of your many words. Just don't do that. He warned of vain repetitions. Jesus said, look, when you talk to your father, just talk to him like a humble, simple child would talk to their father in a relationship. Listen, don't manufacture special phrases or try and pray like this person who seems like they're a really good prayer. Listen, that is the most ludicrous stuff. Well, I don't... I don't pray in public because I don't pray good. That is the most foolish statement in regards to prayer. You don't understand what prayer is. I don't pray good. I've raised three children. I've never said, don't talk to me until you learn how to talk right. Until you learn proper English. Don't speak to me. That's a run-on sentence. I will have none of that in this household. No. Whether it's goo-goo, gaga, dad-dab, you know... Baby babble, look, it's communication. If it's genuine and it's sincere, I enjoy it and I want to hear it. Listen, there's an arrogancy. There's, there's a subtle, prideful issue in our heart when we say, I don't pray because I don't pray good. Well, you're not supposed to be impressing people when you pray. You're supposed to just be talking to God. And some people that sound like they're praying good from God's perspective, they really may not be good prayers because some people who sound like they're praying good and let, let me go to the other side so you don't feel like, oh, why are you picking on the people who don't pray out loud? There are other people who sound like they pray really good and can I caution you? Sometimes if you're trying to sound like you pray really good, maybe your prayers aren't very good to God because maybe the way you're praying is really more to sound impressive or to preach a sermon through your prayer <laughs> rather than just talking to God. And you're manufacturing in genuine incense and you're taking something that's to be sacred and sincere and you're using it in an inappropriate way. Listen, genuine. Just talk to God. Be genuine, be sincere. Pour out your heart before him.